This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello there, everybody. Tonight, we are looking at The Eye, a second wave Asian horror film from 2002. Uh, we were also going to be looking at what we've been watching, and Stephen has also got another tale from the dark side of Asian cinema. Now... Obviously, if you've been keeping up with our podcast, you know that we've just wrapped up our top 50 Asian cinema of all time. And hopefully you all enjoyed seeing what our picks are. You can find the full list on Letterboxd and you can also see it on, uh, see it on our blog as well. And we also have to issue something of a little bit of apology for some people who obviously checked out part one uh, often that moment in com and noticed that they may have stumbled across our work print cut instead of our lovely polished final cut. Uh, so more than likely, you probably just heard my Steven, myself and Stephen, you know, arguing about bagels and cream cheese and other exciting behind the scenes stuff. So hope you enjoyed that. And uh, we've since corrected it. So now you just get the lovely polished final cut there. So, if anyone was slightly confused by what was happening over at that uh we're sorry about that. So, but uh, everything should hopefully, you know, be back on on track now. But I mean, Stephen, since the last episode, I mean, what's been holding your interest really in terms of film watching? In terms of film, well, in terms of Asian cinema, very yeah. little. Um, okay. In terms of film watching, I've been. Um, well, I went to see um, I went to see Captain Marvel because you know that's what you've got to do. That was all right, and I've been um, I, I've started my pre-work for the next episode of my own podcast, um, which is Russian cinema this month. Um, which I know I, I, I watched um, Russian Ark, which is quite a clever sort of one-shot um, film. Which I now feel stupid because I don't know anything about Russian history. <laughs> Russian cinema is a difficult one to do, certainly, and it's nice that you're tying in with the dramatization of Chernobyl, which is also on this month. So, okay, yeah, okay. Well, I hadn't hadn't, hadn't realised that, but yeah, it's, it's going to be um, that month. And also, I watched one of my cinema shames, which was Carrie, Brian De Palma's Carrie, okay. which I realised I owned. Yeah, at, at least twice, but I'd never got around to watching, which is a strange old film, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of the De Palma's <laughs> filmography is very strange. Uh, Sisters, in particular, is pretty random, and some certainly some racially insensitive moments, should we say, in that film. But no, De Palma's like one of those those directors that you is you're really glad when you dive into his filmography because it's like this wonderful treasure you sort of stumble across, and you look at things such as like Phantom of the Paradise. And you realise that here is like a true maverick of cinema, which has somehow managed to escape all the usual cool detention that we put on people like Cronenberg and Lynch. And he's just this this real sort of like Marvel out there, just uh, making films his own way. And I think he's obviously done films in the sort of like the mainstream, such as like Carrie, and then he does films such as Sisters and, uh, as we said, uh, Phantom of the Paradise, which are just kind of like a Hitchcock 
homages and or weird like random musicals and you can understand why there is a bit there is a following from and that only seems to be sort of growing in recent years there seems to be this real sort of sort of burst of uh interest in his work but i mean how did you find carrie did you enjoy it or i was i mean i i, I think i've always been fond to a brian de palma film and i always think he's had a bit of a bad rep because people often like use him for being like a hitchcock ripoff don't they um but I mean, I, I guess I must have seen Carrie many, many years ago. It was the first time I properly watched it. I'd picked up like the Arrow Blu-ray on a sort of a three for twenty deal or something like that. And I thought, oh, I really must get around to watching that. And I read the book many, many years ago. Um, and it's sort of weird. It's like it's like one part horror movie, one part teen drama, and then there's these weird things like the comedy skit when they're buying a tuxedo which also involves a bit of speeding up and involves characters that you never meet again and therefore this whole moment has no purpose whatsoever and it's almost as if he won you know like his first real i guess it was his first real um mainstream film and he was just using everything up he had it was like a show reel more than a film isn't it i mean but you know the bits the bits that are famous are famous rightfully you know, it's got a really proper jump scare at the end the the whole sort of third act based in the um uh in the in the uh what's it called the the the, the prom is 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 amazing but it's just just really weird sort of throw everything against the wall and see what it sticks filmmaking i want to say it's the first film that i remember using menstruation as this symbol of awakening power and since then we've seen it in the likes of ginger snap we saw it in like vincent vampire princess uh, if you want like a, a a more sort of asian cinema sort of link there so as far as i remember he was like the first one first person to sort of use use that imagery um and obviously it's with carrie it's about her sort of awakening psychic abilities as we get those sort of first hints during that also memorable locker room opening which you know back in the when you were watching this as a kid is you you're excited because it's you know it's it's nudity and these are pre-internet days so the only sort of nudity you ever saw was if you saw like a bit a boob or something on in on a film or something. It was always like the most exciting thing that would probably happen to you uh, if you saw nudity on film. So, and more likely the part of the tape that got wore out. <laughs> there is there is a, there is a bit there is a bit of that, and I guess you know you got to put it in context of the time. Um, but I mean, and obviously Stephen King at the time wasn't the um, wasn't the sort of the the old granddaddy author that he is now. He was still quite. Relatively young in his career, so he was a um, coach snorting maniac, if I recall, right? Oh, I think he was. It's a really interesting book, actually, because it's like written and it's not. It's not a. It's not a straightforward novel. It's like a collection of letters and articles, and you know, nothing, nothing like those gigantic tomes that he drones out these days. But um, or even yeah, those days, to he, a degree, he never knows how to end his books. I find he, he starts no. off well, and doesn't know how to end. Yeah, he's an ideas guy, but um, yeah, no, I, I I really enjoyed it, but I was just surprised just how wacky it was in some places, and um, wasn't the film that I thought I remembered, which is what makes me thinking if I'd ever watched it before, and maybe I just know the um, the famous scenes, you know, yeah. because they've been uh, homaged and replayed ad nauseum, I suppose. I want to know: is there an Asian cinema remake of of Carrie? Or something in a similar vein, the, the bullied 
psychic girl. And I know in anime there's like numerous sort of properties with psychics and and that 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 sort of thing. In but I just wonder if there's been like a film version because it would surprise me if there's the story being as it is. It would surprise me if there's not been some sort of translated uh, translated version for Asian cinema at all. Well, I can't think of anything directly, but there is obviously that whole subgenre of Korean schoolgirl movies, which involve bullying and sexual awakening. You know, like the Whispering Corridors films are probably the most famous, but there's, there's, there's definitely a whole sub. We could probably do a whole show. We could probably do a top twenty-five on them. So I guess they are inspired to some shape. I mean, King is fairly universal as an author, um, and that's a fairly classic film um which again elements of it have been have been used elsewhere even okay. in the simpsons and the like so yeah I, I i would say probably nothing direct but the certainly its inspiration could be seen okay if anyone obviously does know let us know in the uh, comment section or shoot us an email or let us know on facebook or twitter um certainly let us know and um i would be really interested to to see i know there's a remake of coffee uh called a sexy killer which the Shaw brothers put out uh, which is like almost like a shot for shot remake in many ways, uh, but no, that'd be really cool. There's like a, an Asian cinema version of Carrie. That'd be really cool to see. Um, anything else at all? Oh, uh, that's about it, really. What about okay. yourself? Um, for myself, I mean, I recently went on vacation, which of course for myself means taking a huge stack of DVDs with me because it's one of the rare times that I get to watch a lot of films without having the distractions of. The real world, should we say? Uh, so I basically went over with, like all these good intentions. I was gonna like finally watch Argento's Suspiria, which of course failed to happen. Um, but I did watch the Red Cliff Part One, uh, which I have to say I really, really enjoyed Part One. And I, yes, I mean I may be slightly biased being like a John Woo fan, but there's so much to enjoy. Just the sheer epic scaleness of of Red Cliff and. Especially if you're a fan of like the Dynasty Warriors games, you're really gonna kick out this movie because it's just such huge scale. There's like thousands of troops being on on screen, and you've got all these sort of like colourful generals going to war against each other. And well, I've certainly seen only the part one because I'm watching the full four and a half hour cut of this uh, this epic film that uh, John Woo made on his return from Hollywood. He did paycheck in Hollywood, and they returned to. His native uh, sort of Hong Kong, this returning hero, and basically went on to make this four and a half hour epic. And so far, I mean, I've really enjoyed it. The battle scenes are really exciting. The characterization and the storylines are really great. And I mean, it for the sheer amount of characters that are in this film. I mean, there's at least about twenty five main characters. The fact that each one sort of stands out and you know who everyone is really sort of a credit to to Wu as a director. Uh, so I'm very excited to see part two when I get five minutes to obviously sit down and watch that. Certainly on Amazon at the moment, I've got quite a big watch list of stuff to watch because I don't know if you've checked out Amazon Prime recently, but it's it's kind of like become the world's greatest old school video shop on there. And that they've just opened the floodgates and just put so many like old school VHS titles on there, especially with like Shaw Brothers title. There's just so many... Um, like classic kung fu movies and stuff that you can now check out on Amazon Prime, and it's—I don't know what sparked this decision, but I'm all the more grateful for the fact I can watch like Man of Iron and My Young Ganty and 
just movies like that which will be a little difficult to watch otherwise and i'm just really looking forward to the next sort of coming weeks to dive in more and see what else there is to offer on there so Oh, I'm glad they're on there now because they were all on iTunes. I don't know if they still are, but iTunes I find a terribly restrictive platform. You know, you've got to be on Apple now, the, <laughs> which is fine for me, but it's not fine for everyone. In fact, it's not fine for most people. Whereas Amazon is, I guess, a little bit more ubiquitous and and obviously you have to pay a bit extra and so on and so forth. But um, I, I I think it's it's really good and, and and as you say it it's it's not it's not there're not many um sort of mainstream top notch movies on there but it is like finding an old fashioned video store isn't it <laughs> oh definitely so it's 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 like the strangest um the strangest experience really just to to go on there and find find the likes of up from the depths which is like a jaws knockoff and or just like something like joysticks which is like a arcade set sex comedies and just like these really random movies i mean yes the quality of them does vary greatly um but there's some real interesting finds if you're willing to just do some deep dives into what it recommends especially then you can really find some sort of gems in there before we obviously uh, get onto tonight's uh, selection, I do also want to give a quick shout out to our good friend Zoe of Zobo the Shotgun, who has just now launched her own podcast, the Zobo the Shotgun podcast, which you can find on iTunes as well as all places good podcasts can be found. And she is going currently through the history of extreme cinema. Uh, so she started right at the beginning and looking at the Grand Guignel, which is really the theatre which has sort of gave birth in many ways to sort of extreme cinema it sort of paved the way by putting on these grotesque performances where people were like murdered and killed on stage sheer shock and awe of it and it's a really she's put together a really sort of interesting little show it's uh, as i say it's a one woman production at the moment but she has uh, said that she is planning on getting guests on so i have to uh, obviously give her credit and uh, as you all go and give it a look because it is a it's a really interesting listen and i'm interested to see where she goes from episode one so definitely go and check that out and have you listened to it yet Stephen? i have actually yeah well certainly to the first episode i think that's all that's out at the moment yeah. isn't it um it's kind of interesting well so that sounds terrible doesn't it it's very <laughs> Great interesting recommendation from Stephen, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mar- yeah it's all right and i'm i'm very interested in these first three episodes where she sort of taking a history of horror but through an extreme lens because so i think we've um there's plenty of examples where we you know the, the the classic history of horror and you hit those normal um points but because she's taking it in a, from a very specific subgenre, i'm she's able to do deep dives like you say into grand guignol and 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 such like so i'm interested to see where she's going with that yeah I'm, i mean grand guignol is, is such a fascinating subject it's always interesting when it gets mentioned uh much like you know the the grandfather pieces of like exploitation cinema when we talk about like todd browning's freaks i've always got time for, for someone to do deep dives into those areas i mean it's quite there's plenty of people wanting to talk about 70s and 80s horror but nobody really wants to talk about the roots of horror which is uh why things such as like the Monster Show and Kim Newman's Nightmare movies are such interesting terms to read because they actually do those dives into these lesser explored areas, should we say. So, But talking of obviously lesser explored areas of horror, I mean, tonight 
is your selection, Stephen. You went from the 2002 film The Eye, uh, which is directed by the Pang Brothers. And I'm writing to this is a Thai movie or is it a Korean, Hong Kong movie? The Pang Brothers are really fascinating because they... Um... <laughs> it's really a pan-Asian movie. Um, they were born in Hong Kong, but clearly I believe they've been raised in Thailand. Um, and they usually make their films either in Thailand or with Thai money. Um, it was actually funded by Singaporean money. So it's, it's a real pan-Asian experience, and, and you can see that in the casting. The lead actress is, I think, Malaysian. Uh, Lawrence Chow is sort of Canadian-Chinese. There's Thai people in it. There's, um, there's Hong Kong actors in there as well. So, um, yeah, I think we consider it a Hong Kong film, certainly as it's in Cantonese, but its, it's roots are all over Asia. This is sort of a second-wave Asian horror film, as when... We obviously had that initial sort of wave of like the J horror coming across, and we had things such as like Audition and The Ring, and perhaps the lesser it said Battle Royale. And then you had these sort of second wave films such as like R Point, and obviously this film, Tale of Two Sisters, and I would say perhaps like Versus. And while they certainly are noted as 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 worthy worthy films, they never seem to like get the same sort of buzz that that we have with like the ring and an audition where they were just like constantly making these like these top 25 lists and these films while they were obviously being noted and certainly appreciated they just never seemed to sort of generate the same sort of buzz and i mean the film the plot itself um sees a violinist uh called mun who is she undergoes a eye cornea transplant and she's given as not only her sight back, but also the ability to see these mysterious figures that seem to foretell gruesome deaths. And as the film goes on, she sort of delves more into understanding what these visions are and obviously trying to find out how she can obviously lift this sort of sort of blessing and curse that she's now been given along along with these uh with her sight back so it's uh, got a bit of a mystery there and it's also got the obviously the element the ghost story elements there as well i mean the film itself produced two sequels um as well as an american remake in 2008 with jessica alba and we also got a hindi remake called uh, narnia uh, which was released in 2005 so much like The Ring, it's one of those films that sort of has come out and it's really sort of struck, struck a chord with audiences enough for them to give it a remake, much like The Grudge and we saw with Dark Water. But I think that The Eye itself is a very underrated film and I'm very interested to see why you why you chose chose this one in particular, Stephen. Well, I think probably um, I chose it sort of kind of almost for the reason that you explained in, in, in what you call like the second wave of, of, of Asian horror. Because... Those first films that you talked about, um, particularly Ringu and Audition, um, uh, The Grudge as well, I guess we could put in that in that envelope, were Japanese. Yeah. And then what we got was a flood of K-horror. And then later it was, you know, and it's a Japan and Korea kind of rule the roost in that world. Um there aren't that many Hong Kong, but certainly there are very few Chinese horror films, mainland Chinese, because of um, things like horror and ghosts and things not being allowed in mainland China. So to find a Hong Kong film 
is unusual and then that opens you up because a lot of this is like I say based set in Thailand and the Pang brothers very closely work in Thailand so that kind of opens you up to things like Shutter and and, and, and that kind of it's, it's, it's always like part of the journey you start off with the Japanese stuff you move to the Korean stuff and then you start searching elsewhere I'm a huge fan of the Pang brothers per se um mostly because one of them's called Oxide which I just think is the <laughs> coolest name ever but um, Danny and Oxide have made lots of films still making films today both together and separately they have a really interesting working um manner where when they're making a film together they just alternate days it doesn't matter what scene they're working on or how they're working they just alternate days and because they're twins they just say it just works for them but what they are they are they are a couple of filmmakers who I really like they've got their own tropes and and tells but every time you read anything about them or every time they do a new film they're always judged by this one <laughs> this is this is it's like um oh, I don't know it's it's like um every time you hear about um, Marilyn Manson they always put in brackets real name Brian Warner after it right utterly irrelevant but they, it, it's just lazy journalism really but they but they do that and that's what I feel about the Pang Brothers I this isn't even vaguely my favorite Pang Brothers film but it's so so it's a good gateway to both Pang Brother films and it's a good gateway to having a look at sort of that ghostly horror kind of thing from places other than Japan and Korea which is why, like, so I guess you know, that, that's my two reasons for picking it. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting when I saw this film originally. On the Tardom release for this, it was like given all these comparisons to Sixth Sense, and I'd never seen the Sixth Sense at that point. I'd been given the twist, but I never actually knew what the Sixth Sense was about. So I went into this one completely blind, and I was very surprised by how uh, how the story story flows for this because while it's obviously a ghost story at its heart, it handles the material in a very sort of different and non-traditional sort of way as right from the i think it's pretty early on it's sort of established that while her with her operation that you know something's not gone quite right as you start seeing like these shadowy figures and we start getting sort of the links to like the real world real world sort of connections there such as like she sees the young boy and she finds out that uh finds out afterwards that he'd killed himself uh, over a report card and I think the most touching one's the young boy that visits her in the hospital and she finds out that he, later that he died on the operating table so it's the way it handles the ghost stories it's not sort of like a sort of spooky, sort of spooky ooh, sort of ghost and rattling chains and stuff they're just sort of the ghosts of this presence so they're sort of like uh, in this limbo-esque world yeah, so they're like they're like they're like been left behind, haven't they? So That's there's right. um there's another there's another example. Um, she's in the cafe and there's a woman and child sort of waiting outside the door, and it turns out there's another woman there who can see them as well. And it turns out it's like it's 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 the dead mother and daughter of the owner of the cafe who want to come and say goodbye, but they can't and. It's that's a very Chinese thing that sort of ghosts are around and they're not really there to haunt you. They just haven't necessarily moved on. Um, yeah. And the, and the, the, the only one which is, uh, I guess, there's, there's the, the woo effect, that can be our thing now, is that that one in the office that sort of looks like it's going to attack her, but just, why are you at my desk? And sort of goes towards her. And then you have the, I guess, the, the, the keynote scare in the film is, is the moment in the lift where she's, where she's getting a lift and there's something behind her. 
and there's something just slowly and 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 it's a real visceral experience isn't it that 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 you you're with her there in a lift because lifts are pretty scary places when you're there on your own in the middle of the night and you just know there's something behind and we can see that something isn't touching the ground and there's something horrible about it but it's just a really it's a moment of real tension um and again i guess it just shows you you know the, the chinese ghost story isn't interested in blood and guts and gore it's interested in just making those hairs on your back of your neck go up a bit oh definitely so and it's it's such a unique sort of take because i mean ghost stories themselves are pretty difficult to tell um especially because i think especially with uh with ghosts is sort of like limited on what what they can do and i think certainly when with more modern ghost stories in that they tend to forget the sort of fundamental rule of a ghost story is that you old ghosts have to follow the rules that you've set for your ghost in this story and i think this was a mistake that the first american horror story um sort of made in the fact that all the ghosts seem to be following their own independent rules so the fact that we got ghosts in this film as just spirits which are, <coughs> are in limbo and just they're waiting to move on. I think it's just such a refreshing sort of take on the material. Um, yes, it's, you know, it's not the most... It's, I think it's going to be disappointing for you. Gwent is thinking, oh, it's going to be like there for a sort of thrills and there's going to be sort of jump scares because it's really not that sort of film. And at the same time, you never sort of disappointed the fact that it's not going, going in that direction. The fact it's choosing to treat her as this sort of messenger in many ways. This one who's trying to trying to help them move on i think it's such a an interesting take and even when we get even like the sort of subtleties of how this sort of limbo works the fact that we got this shadowy figure that seems to help them move on which we assume is is supposed to be a representation of death i love those love those sort of little moments that are throughout it i think obviously once it gets into its sort of final act and the film moves to thailand which we'll talk about in a moment uh it kind of lost me a bit as i was kind of enjoying where it was going just as sort of in its sort of world building in that first half but yeah certainly it's it's approach to the material is very sort of unique and at the same time it works really well for this story and it also um, i i i'm going to agree with you about the third act as well <laughs> but 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 it spends time in the first two acts and it's not just it's not just about the ghost stuff. Um, so, you no, know, this is a woman... I can't remember if she's been blind since birth or she'd gone blind. But... She's blind from two because her yeah. mother said, says that her... So the grandmother character uh, says that her father had made all these home movies so that if she ever regained her sight, that she'd be able to see her, her children and her growing up. Um, so so she was born with, born with sight, but she spent most of her life without That's, sight. Yeah. So that. That's right. But when she gets the sight back, she doesn't get it back straight away. You know, they, they spend time saying, hey, look, she her brain can't process this. Because um, I think it would have been very easy for them to say, oh, hey, I've got my eyes now. Oh, look, and now I'm seeing ghosts. Uh, but but the, the, they spend the time, the film, it's not even a long film. It's only about 90 minutes long, 96 minutes long. Yeah, it really but rattles it, but off. It, but it really it, it is able in the first couple of acts to really set up this world, to really set up Man as a character. Um, so first, firstly, it takes time for her eyes to, to to start working again, and that's giving us hints that she doesn't know what she what seeing should be like. Really, well, when you're two, you don't really remember it back from then, do you? And the other thing um, I liked was um, actually being blind for her 
wasn't such a bad life um, to such a degree that she so she's a um, she's a violinist and she's got the chance to play in this really important concert. But because she's got her eyes back, the band, the the the, the orchestral company she, she um, plays with are all disabled, and she's no longer disabled, and she can't play anymore. And I just I just thought that's a really yeah that 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 would happen, wouldn't it? You know when it, it's um. It's, you know, th- th- there's a community you're suddenly locked out of that has been your life for the last or eighteen years. So I thought it was just—it just took time to do some really interesting things, as well as having the ghost story and all this other stuff going on as well. Oh, definitely. So the, in terms of the development of, of the character, there's some really great stuff there, which I don't think you would see in a Western film. It would probably be skipped over. And as you said, the fact that she's given her eyesight back so she can't play in this this concert and they're supporting Vanessa May. Remember when she was a thing? You're completely right. It's the, this idea that she's been locked out of this community. And you hear it time and time again, if like, especially with people who were born deaf and they're suddenly given their, their ability to hear. And the fact that they're then sort of rejected by by their their friends in the sort of deaf community, the fact that they've chosen in many ways to turn their turn their back, should we say, on on the life that they that they've been leading up until that point. And I like that there's lots of little details, such as like you got the doctor saying that she's got to basically learn to live her life again. The fact that she's learned everything through through sight through sound and touch and now she has to put the visuals to to the to those same feelings so she like she has to learn what like a stapler is she has to learn what a choice is because she has no words for these for these items because she's only done everything by touch and sound so i thought that uh that those sort of sequences and especially the parts with like the psychotherapist really they they added such a realism to the film, which I felt it really needed it. It stops it becoming too fantastical, and it it really sort of uh, helps with with the character Mun especially. And it also obviously gives us the the the, the other, I think, great mo- moment in the film is that she says, "Well, who, who's this in these photographs?" And they're going, "Well, it's you." <laughs> And you suddenly sit, and then she looks at a mirror or a reflective glass, and the face that she sees isn't her, and you just think. But you wouldn't know, would you? you she, she doesn't even know what she looks like. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just thought that there's, there's little touches throughout the film like that that I think elevate it from just being a, a, a creepy ghost story. I mean, I guess we've had films before, haven't we, where people have had transplant. I know, like the hand and stuff like that, the beast with five fingers. You know, where where you you, you get somebody else's hand or organs or something like that, and you take on their. Um, uh, you take on their personality or such like um which i guess comes from the cannibal films talk about similar things don't they where you, you take on take on the, the 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 personality or the the attributes of the thing that you're eating yeah um ra- like ravenous is not that 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 cannibal uh, that, that that film with guy pierce <laughs> has a similar thing going on it but it's done in a really subtle and just smart way and just shows that these two guys are i've got a story and something that's um there's a little bit more to it and, that, and i think that's what i enjoy about it however <laughs> when they do go to thailand and they do start finding out the truth which leads us to a an explosive finale shall we say i'm less interested in that um and i think that is personified by 
the fact we have she's got her doctor and then there's another doctor who's the guy's son obviously he's a similar age to her so they can have a romantic relationship i just thought it was a bit redundant that <laughs> we had um two characters who who were could be were, were they father and son or were they father and nephew or something like that some or uncle and nephew they didn't need to be two separate characters it was just weird <laughs> and, and i and i just felt that and then that that was just indicative of that final act being like do you know what i didn't need all this I mean, the whole part in Thailand, the fact that she has to go to this village in Thailand, so to find out the truth about whose eyes she's inherited and, in a way, help the spirit of these eyes to move on. And I mean, he, he gets a little, little silly because, I mean, it goes into possession and this idea that the person who originally had them had this, this gift of, of, of a second sight so she too could see uh, see like you know death and disaster and that it basically uh basically goes that uh, she had foreseen this uh this disaster that was going to fulfill for her village and basically the villagers took the very rational decision of you know chasing her out because they didn't believe her and were and uh the whole sort of uh thing that she has to like go back to try and make peace with with uh, this girl's this girl's mother, and I feel like that. I mean, it it obviously has to go. The film has to go somewhere to obviously give us some sort of, sort of resolution. But I don't know if this was the right choice. But at the same time, I'm not sure. Whatever way you could have really gone, maybe that she. I know maybe she she takes on a role as a, a ghost whisperer and helps spirits to move on. Maybe that would have been the a way to take the film and. I'd... Well, I get. I, I mean, it's based the the. the I, I know we're not big on spoilers here, but you know, the, there's a there's a big gas explosion at the end, and and that's something that really happened in Thailand, where the Pangs were there. Um, so they they obviously knew about that news story. A lot of people died in a in a, in a gas explosion. Um, lots of damage was caused. So I guess they thought, well, we could we could take that and and use that. And it, what it does, it gives us an opportunity to put her back in the state we found her in. I guess um, it just felt it felt bigger than the rest of the movie had been, and it sort of it, it just sort of just got big a bit too quickly for my liking. I'd I'd have just liked something a bit more personal, maybe stayed in Hong Kong, and uh, didn't did, did, didn't feel the need to go to Thailand. The, you know, those corneas could have come from anywhere, couldn't mm. they? Um, didn't have to come from Thailand. And uh, yeah, I can see what you're saying, but it's. Uh... The fact that the decision they obviously make with the end of this this film, it felt very much like it's kind of the decision you make when you 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 want to kill any potential to franchise your film, that you would make a decision like that rather than what could potentially have set up been with this film been the setup for the films which followed. Um, here they decide to almost encapsulate the story so that they so that uh, we're left with money in the same position that she that she starts the film and I mean while she's obviously happy at the end of the film it felt that you know we've essentially scuttled any chance of a franchise even though they obviously went on to produce two more films in this this uh this franchise it just felt like a very unusual sort of move I'm not sure there was supposed to be some sort of like irony or something the fact that she'd finally finally sort of removed this curse and we're just going to take it all we're going to take away Take away her so-called reward for her good deeds. I, 
it it's uh, it still doesn't make sense even now, even after multiple times I've seen this film. While I like the sequence itself, um, it doesn't actually make a huge amount of sense to me. No, it, it, at the end of the day, nothing, we haven't really moved on, have we? No one, no one's moved on because we never. I never got the sense that she was particularly unhappy being blind. Um, no, it, um, just, it seems <laughs> everyone else was doing a, a nice thing by having to have this operation because they felt that you know she can't possibly be blind and happy. She has to have her sight back to be happy. But whereas, whereas the, actually, everything that she was doing in her life. Um, like 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 the the violin playing and so on, and and she was quite capable, you know. She she, she didn't strike me as someone who was disadvantaged by her blindness, um, at least you know, within the characters and within the world of this movie. Um, so 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 what, what what lesson have we learnt at the end? You know, <laughs> That's, I'm I'm not I'm not so sure if there's a if there's a sort of a moral lesson we can take from it or a or a life lesson we can take from it, which I guess which makes it a bit unusual. I mean, like I say, I, I see it as a as a gateway movie to look at both the Pang movies and ghost films from other places. So even though it's a Hong Kong movie, um, definitely to look at Thai movies and just to look at ghost stories in particular. Um, with a with a very Chinese bent on it, so th- things from Singapore, from Malaysia, um, their concepts of what ghosts are are very different to what we understand them in in the West, and very different to how Japan and Korea, who tend to use ghosts as more like vengeful spirits. Um, so the, the the difference between the ghosts that Mun sees and um, Sadako, for example, are quite different things, aren't they? Yeah. So, yeah, it's. I think it's it's always sort of interesting when you have these uh, have these different takes on on popular sort of genres. I mean, certainly when we look at like the Hong Kong take on vampires it's completely different than the west for a start i think certainly with the with these ghost stories i don't know whether i prefer like the asian ghost stories to the western ghost stories or not i mean do you have a preference yourself or oh in a way i do think there's a almost a a link between in particular english ghost stories sort of the md james sort of things the um where the go or even something like rebecca which isn't really a ghost story at all, but it's got the air of a ghost story about it. Whereas the ghosts are just there, the ghosts of our past, the ghosts of our memories, the ghosts of our the, the people that we've left behind. Yeah. And and actually, it's about the here and now. It's about us, and the, and and the, the, the dead are just things which influence us to make decisions or to live our lives in certain ways rather than being so yeah so so the you know it's like the classic british ghost story isn't about jumps and boos and scares um certainly in a pre-hammer horror kind of world um, and a pre-monster movie kind of world so I, i i maybe there is a similarity but i guess for me it's um it's also kind of the sort of thing that really got me into asian cinema is because it lets you look at things different how different cultures deal with things like death and spirits and and mourning um and and this film just gave, gave me a, an initial viewpoint into that so also i might struggle with aspects of it dramatically 
Um, it made me go and look up things like the 49 days and the, and, and the various festivals which are related to death, which then informed me to be able to understand other films better. And further watching, where do you sort of go from here, really? Okay, well, I've picked four films for once <laughs> for further <laughs> watching um, um, in sort of three different directions. So, firstly... Um, the Pang Brothers themselves. So like I say, the Pang Brothers films are often always prefixed by it or, or suffixed by and it isn't as good as the I. Um, now they have their faults and in more recent times they've really branched out into into different worlds. But there was a time they were almost like the M. Night Shalaman of, um, of Asian cinema where they'd have these films and they'd be quite high concept and and maybe the delivery wasn't always perfect, or there yeah. were, or there were, the sort of the twist ending was their thing. Um, so in that vein, there's a film they did called In Love with the Dead, which is Sean Yu and Steffi Tang. Um, the title, the English title, gives away the whole twist, but basically it's another ghost story um, uh, that, that's really enjoyable. Um, but it's also looking at things like about uh, having a terminally ill partner and so on and so forth um it's got sean Yu, who's a who's a who's a fine um i think he's mainland but he might be a hong kong actor and steffi tang's one of these ex-pop stars who becomes a actress who's actually got better as time goes on so uh, that that's a really entertaining um pang brothers film in this sort of era um the follow-up they did to this film with um Angelica Lee as well as the uh, main actress, cause, and she went on to become, I think she's at Oxide's wife, isn't she, now, but but she wasn't at the time, is a film called Recycle. Now, have you seen Recycle? No, in a while. Yeah, so so yeah. Recycle is, is dealing with similar ideas about sort of the afterlife and other worlds, um, but I don't think there's been many Hong Kong films in this genre <laughs> that um that are quite so epic in what they're putting on the screen and she goes and uh, the, the main character goes into another world another uh, 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 an afterlife and it's realized so amazingly the film's got some faults in it but to see where they went from here and where they went next is a is a real step up in um uh, in, in craft i think Sticking with Hong Kong, um, I'd recommend Inner Senses, and I'll probably talk about Inner Senses in a future um, Dark Tales of Asian Cinema because it has parallels with um, with the the lead actors passing away. But it's another proper ghost story where a young girl is haunted and there's a medical professional involved. It's got similar ideas, but it goes in a completely different place, and is a kind of important film for Hong Kong cinema. Period. And finally movie about a blind person um, is the <laughs> Korean um, 2011 film Blind <laughs> which is not a ghost story at all, it's more of a thriller but it stars um, Kim Harnell as a blind woman who gets involved in a um, in a in a crime and again it's, it, it's, a, it's, it's an actress trying to sort of display what it's like being a blind woman in the modern world and actually being quite capable because of it um, totally rips off the um, elements of uh, Silence of the Lambs near the end. It was 
without night vision goggles, but you, you know the idea that we're <laughs> yeah. getting at. But but hugely entertaining and very well acted and just a different sort of movie using using the similar trope as it says um as its central conceit. How about yourself? Uh, for myself, I think mine are gonna be I want perhaps a little more predictable, but we're just going to sort of focus on the second wave uh, sort of horror films. So first off would be Shutter, uh, which is really sort of part of that that sort of second wave. That's released in 2004. Um, the other one I would obviously recommend would be would be Duon, as in The Grudge. But the two I'm obviously going to recommend <coughs> would be Duon White Ghost and Duon Black Ghost, uh, from, both from 2009. Um while obviously both follow the sort of same sort of theme of of the grudge, um, I felt that those two were just sort of like slightly more different sort of take. There's some interesting visuals in there, especially, and again, it's that that Eastern take on on the ghost story property that is just so different. Um, and even when we look at things such as like the ring, how that chose to handle handle its uh, sort of property, because I mean. The, and it's harder. Would you say like the ring is a ghost story, or would you say it's more of a curse movie? Well, it's kind of interesting because the original novels are science fiction stories. They're um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're they're um, they're, they're they're medical science fiction stories um, with a, with a dose of horror. Um, except and then, and then they sort of move into quite quite high concept science fiction with um, virtual reality and stuff in play. Yeah. Um, I think. The films distilled that and played with ghostly imagery. Um, you know, Sadako is a long-haired ghost girl. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> like Pixie Girl, Pixie Man, Man, Manic Pixie Girls, and things like that. And I think it was using those kind of those kind of scares that I was describing in the lift scene in this film. You know. Uh, to, to some degree so yeah i would call that a ghost story but not necessarily what i'd call a traditional ghost story okay you can disagree <laughs> <laughs> um so you obviously have our, our thoughts and opinions on uh on uh, on the eye um so definitely check it out and certainly the, the pang brothers have got a really interesting filmography as you said already Stephen. there's some, definitely some interesting films in there and it's it's certainly a difficult one when you look at the filmography because obviously they split into two or both as directing together or separately um i would say oxide certainly done more in terms of directing and he obviously did the detective detective two um and even did like the test Rat, which is an adaptation of a alex garland novel and then danny pang obviously did photo killer which i've obviously talked about enjoying before so I mean, would you say one direct one brother's better than the other, or they sort of stronger together? I actually think I'm just having a look. I think I'm probably a big fan of Oxide, um, Abnormal Beauty, Diary, are two other favourite films, which I could have suggested off this. I love the detective films, all three of them. Um, whereas Danny's work. Um, he's he's got less enough of the dead is actually Danny's film, um, uh, but I, uh, I'm not such a huge fan. But then he also does um, he also worked on, as an editor on things like um, the Infernal Affairs movies, so he right. he yeah he does exist outside of of 
of with his of, of being with his brother so but i think i think i think oxide's probably my favorite but um i if i see that there's a, a film involving a pang brother or brothers i will be inclined to check it out and you know be aware that they're they're, they're flawed but it is not but they also have a, a certain style a certain charm um a certain comfort in a Pang Brothers film, because I kind of know the things, the the, the the montages, the certain sorts of shots, the the, the way they go about things, um, is something that I know. You know, is is for genre people, it's quite comforting to know that what you're going to expect out of one of their films. Yeah. Definitely, um, we're going to take a quick break now, and when we return, uh, Stephen is going to be again us with another tale from the dark side of Asian cinema. In a world where podcasts already seem to address every imaginable subject, one man broke new ground with a seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge, a maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules. Now, he has a last chance to talk about the strange way helicopters explode in film. Exploding Helicopter, available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about chopper fireballs? Think again. And we're back. Uh, obviously, in the first half, we were talking about the eye. And uh, before we obviously wrap tonight's show up, I do obviously have to uh, urge you, if you haven't done already, please do hit the subscribe or, and leave a review, whether you're listening to us at thatmoment.com or iTunes or Podmanic or wherever you happen to be uh, listening to us. Make sure you uh, hit the subscribe and uh, leave us a rating as it really helps raise the show profile. You can, as always, uh, check us out on both Facebook and Twitter. And uh, you can also check out our full archive of episodes, which is on our blog, which is asiansinemafilmclub.wordpress.com. Also there, you can find the mixtapes, you can find reviews, you can find things such as like David, uh, David Brooks' Movie Vault, you can find the transcripts of the Dark Salvation Cinema, you can find anime reviews. We've just got a whole bunch of exciting stuff happening on there, so uh, definitely check it out. And uh, if you really enjoy the show, you know you can cash your vote for us in the British Podcast Awards. Uh, if you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com forward slash vote, and uh, there we'll give you all the details so that you can cash your vote for the Asian Cinema Film Club, and, you know, and uh, show your support for the show that way, which would be really, really nice. Uh, but, Stephen, it's now obviously time for you to take uh, control now and regale us with uh, another tale from the dark side of Asian cinema and what have you got for us this week well this week I've got another tale of suicide and general miserableness but it's a story which continues on literally to this day so it has a bit of modernity to it so um, if you're ready and sitting comfortably I shall begin the Asian film industry is like every other film industry. There are links to organised crime, suicides, murders, salacious gossip. And in this series, I have a look at the darker side of Asian cinema and tell you some tales about the famous names that they don't always want you to hear. Now today's story starts ten years ago, and I warn you now, it doesn't yet have a definitive conclusion. Investigations into this case are ongoing as I talk to you now and it is one of numerous scandals to hit Korean entertainment industry recently. And maybe, just maybe, the Korean people's acceptance of what has been happening 
has just reached a tipping point. Boys Over Flowers was a fantastically popular Japanese shoujo manga that was turned into a 2009 Korean drama that went global, well at the very least Pan-Asian, and it made superstars of many of those that had roles in it, such as Kuhai Sun and Lee Min-ho. But for one of the secondary cast members, this was not to be a stepping stone to stardom. Instead, it became her first and final role. Zhang Jiayun was on the cusp of finally breaking through after a television advert and this role in the immensely popular Boys Over Flowers show. She had already overcome one tragedy in her life when both her parents had died in a 1999 traffic accident. But all was not well with Zhang. She suffered from clinical depression and had actually been receiving medical help for this. But at 3.30pm on the 7th of March 2009, she called her sister, complaining about the stress she was under, and stated that she wanted to die. Her sister was worried, and when she tried to call her back and got no answer, she went back to the home they shared in Songnyam to find that her sister had hanged herself. A quick police investigation declared the death a suicide and said there was no evidence of foul play. However, a few days later, a seven-page document was found. Not a suicide note, but rather a detailed description of what Jang had been through whilst in the employ of her agency. Jang listed details of a hundred parties she'd been forced to attend by her management company, and the names of 31 men she'd been forced to have sex with at these parties. This list was like a who's who of Korean media, owners of newspapers, television producers and other business leaders that were directly named. This document was discovered in a partially burned up fire in a rubbish bin by reporters working for KBS, the national broadcaster of Korea. And it wasn't just sex, it also detailed other physical abuses. This prompted further investigation. It appeared that around 50 letters detailing these abuses had been sent by Jang and they were discovered to have been sent to various contacts and friends. However, only five of the men on these lists were ever investigated, along with a further seven individuals. And even after all that, only two men were ever charged and convicted with any crime. The CEO of the company she worked for got four months in prison and a year in a year of probation for assault, and the other, Jang's manager, got a year in prison with a further two years probation. But his charge was not to do with Jang's death, but rather his attempt to defame and blackmail his CEO. Despite a court declaring the documents valid and unaltered in 2014, nothing more happened, and those detailed on the so-called Jang's list seemingly were declared innocent. Move forward to last year, 2018 and public dissatisfaction with how a number of scandals had seemingly been resolved led to 230,000 people sign a petition to get this case looked at again. In June of that year, the Committee of Past Affairs officially reopened the investigation. A key piece of evidence, Jang's mobile call logs for the year leading up to her death, that had been kept by the prosecutor's office, was mysteriously found to be missing, and would have immediately stymied the investigation. But luckily, a former prosecution lawyer had kept their own copy and submitted it to the committee just a week later. On the 5th of March this year, 2019, a contemporary of Jang's, the actress Yoon Jio, did a series of interviews to publicise her new book called The Thirteenth Testimony.
which detailed her memories and involvement in the death of Jiang ten years previously. In them she detailed what appeared to be a massive cover-up, including the police and prosecutor's office. She reconfirmed the events of these parties and included an example of an abuse of Jiang by a journalist in her very presence. She stated that she had self-given evidence on at least 12 occasions that seemed to have been ignored. She also explained how she had been blacklisted from future castings and was eventually told by one director she would not ever be cast in a role because she had testified for Jiang. On the 18th of March this year, President Moon Jae-in of Korea ordered this case, along with the Burning Sun nightclub scandal, something I may talk about in another episode, and a further scandal involving former Vice Justice Minister Kim Hak-ue, to be investigated in order to give the public their faith back in the Korean police and prosecution services. This is a dark tale I cannot give a conclusion to, even though Jang killed herself ten years ago. We still don't really know the truth of what happened, and the Confucian nature of Korean society would have normally meant the rich and powerful would have gotten off scot-free. Hopefully the new presidential-backed investigations will shed light, not just on what drove Jang to kill herself when she should have been embarking upon a successful career, but also expose the working practices of the Korean entertainment industry, which is something that has long been considered suspect, abusive and corrupt. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> another, another pleasant one for everybody. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, that, on that cheerful note, we, we have come to the end of another episode of the Asian Cinema Film Club. We hope, you, as always, you've enjoyed uh, listening to ourselves. Um, before we go, I do obviously uh, want to give a couple of shout-outs uh, for, for a bit further listening for yourself. The guys over at the Blade Licking Thieves are going to be celebrating 50 episodes looking at Akira. And on their 49th episode, they looked at one of our favourites, Chunking Express, which is definitely worth giving a look. Um, over on thatmonton.com, you can uh, check out all the great shows on there uh, as part of the podcast network, such as Cinema Recall. Game Warp and TV Good Sleep Bad so uh, definitely if you haven't done already do give a look to our friends over on uh, the thatmomentin.com podcast network which we are obviously proud members of as well and uh, as we said at the start of the show uh, Zobo with Shotgun uh, Zoe has launched her own podcast uh, Zobo with Shotgun podcast uh, so definitely check that out as well and uh, as for our next episode um now we've obviously covered quite at this point we've covered quite a few different sort of genres but there is one that i want to say that we haven't covered and that would be the wuxia genre can you think of any wuxia we covered yet soon um i suppose you could say we did um i chose what did i choose um drink with me come drink with me but it's not really wuxia is it in the in the in the classic sense of the next pick that we're going to be looking at on uh, that we're going to be looking at next will be uh, is definitely one that is firmly in the wuxia genre, and that's two that is 1993's uh, Bride with White Hair from Ronnie Yu, uh, starring Bridget Lin. Uh, this is a film which I think when I was first starting getting into Asian cinema, this was sort of like one of the first films that I sort of came across, and uh, one that I've so been keen to revisit uh, since we start the sh- start the show. So uh, on next episode we will be discussing that one. Um, I'm very happy about that because that was going to be one of my choices. So that's another fantastic. one I don't have to choose. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And then, as is always, uh, if you haven't done already, you know, please do like and uh, subscribe the po- for the podcast. Leave us a review; it all helps. And you can also follow us on both f- Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, as well as make sure that you keep up with not only all our announcements on the show, but other interesting bits of uh, news and sort of pop culture that we uh, post on there as well. We always like to try and post something a, a day on there, on there. So there's always something worth checking out. But. Uh, Obviously, uh, Stephen, you've got your new episode, the Guilo Ramblings World Tour, coming out. Is that? I have. Now? So, out at the moment, we have um, my Bruno Gantz episode, Wings of Desire and um, Downfall. Um, Hitler memes are obviously available within that. Um, <laughs> I will hopefully have in the next week or so my Russian episode out, where I look at, as I said earlier, Russian arc and Tarkovsky's mm. The Mirror. And um, there will probably be a couple of special editions coming out where I just look at random movies that I've watched that can come from anywhere in the world, but um, that have to have to have to strike me as interesting or worthy of talk. But the difference is, of course, is that these are these are strictly limited to fifteen minutes. So they're little bite-sized podcasts for you to to add on and use as as punctuation during your longer podcast listening marathons. Fantastic. Um, well, again, thank you as always, and thank you to my co-host, Stephen Palmer. Pleasure as always. And we'll be back next time talking about The Bride with White Hair. Hey! 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 Kinono